0: I want to pick off where we left last week. Our goal right now in the current uh, in the current discussion is to transform our perception of faith. When we walked in here, we thought that faith was something that we have or we don't have. That's what most people think. You're the believer or you're a non-believer, right? You're, uh, you know, you, you're, you, do you believe in God or you're an atheist right? or maybe you're agnostic, right? But our society has very rigid descriptions of faith versus non-faith. In the Torah we find thousands, if not millions of different positions that people could be in with regards to their faith. And the goal that we're uh, of this current of the section of, of, of discussions is going to be to change our perception from way it was till now to way the Torah says because I believe that um, most people uh, have a very simplistic understanding of faith and you know what I would argue that you're right to a certain extent. We're talking about emunah. That's right. Well, I'll explain the difference. No problem. Yeah, you missed it. Yeah. a uh, you missed. It. That's what we. I'll just i rehash what we said last week. When we talk about faith, we could be talking about very simplistic faith, right? Certain knowledge that we have of God or acceptance of the idea of God. Emunah is transformational. It's where someone uh, the idea of God penetrates into their behavior and it makes them a different person. That's what emunah is. If someone behaves the same way that they behaved before they believed in God, that's not emunah. That's, we call it, a certain intellectual understanding of God or a certain intellectual acceptance of the idea of intelligent design. That's not emunah. Emunah is where, some, where, where the idea of God is ever-present in someone's life, influencing them, changing their behavior, right, transforming their character. I mean, does it have to go from non-belief to belief or just to a greater degree? Or yes, yes. So, so, so that's what we're hopefully going to talk about a little, bit, a little bit today, how we move up the ladder, so to speak, of faith. I want to give, just piggyback of what we spoke about last week with the introduction of a very perplexing statement in the Midrash. The statement talks about four kings, four righteous kings that have led our nation, and their various levels of faith. It talks about King David, Asa, Yehoshaphat, and Chistia. And it quotes that David said, I'm going to chase down the enemies, I'm going to capture the enemies, and I'm going to beat them in battle. Number one. Number two, Asa says, listen, I cannot go and try to kill my enemies in battle. Right? Rather, I'm going to Etc. Right, and and basically they're each describing less and less degrees of engagement in battle. And lastly, um, the the second to last says, "Oh, I'm 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 gonna just pray." And the third one says, "I'm not gonna pray. I'm just gonna relax and do nothing. Rely on God. I'm gonna sleep and rely on God." So Dave is like, "I'm gonna go in battle and fight, and then less degree of battle, I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna do nothing. Just sleep and rely on God." So what it seems here, it seems that uh, David was engaging in battle. Does that mean he had less faith or more faith? More. more. Why would you say that, Trevor? Because he's actually going out into battle on the belief that he's going to win. But isn't it greater? Isn't the highest levels of faith to say, I'll just rely on God? No, I'll do nothing, and my, and my enemies will self-combust. Isn't that a much higher level of faith? You would think, right? You have to do your best, you have to do yeah, your well, best. that's right. Say you, have to, you have to put some effort into it, right? Mm-hmm. So he's just putting effort into it. Okay, so my grandfather explained this idea of the various engagements in battle as follows. The goal of all four was to rely on God. All four of them want to rely on God. David was the greatest. He was able to take his sword and sheath his sword and take his arrows and take his cavalry and go into battle and do everything by himself, so to speak, yet have total reliance on God. What happens when we do something ourselves? I accomplish something myself. I immediately assign the success to myself. Right? If I do nothing, and I, you know, if, 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 if I I'm if happen to be uh, digging in my backyard to find oil, I become a millionaire, right? I say that's the Almighty gave me a gift. But if I sweat really hard and I go from rats to riches, well, then it's my money, right? That's what you would think. That's what people, we assume that our efforts contribute to our success. When in truth, regardless of whether we do effort or we don't do effort, our success is due to the Almighty. King David was able to do all the battle himself and slaughter his enemies right, and engage in heavy warfare and not for a second forget about God. The lower our levels of faith are, the more activity we do, the more likely we are to forget God. Thus, the kings on a lower level, each one did less in order to maintain that same level of faith, reliance on God. So it's kind of like the opposite. So this idea, I think, is, is a nice illustration of, of, of what we call a not just faith, where it's really our behavior and our life and our actions. All that is governed by our uh, recognition of, 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 of God being there and, and, and guiding us and motivating us, and not motivating us, but uh, determining uh, for us. Just an idea uh, to, to piggyback upon what we spoke uh, about last week. Now, if someone has true faith, really, real emunah, not only is his life in the realm of faith different, I would argue, and this is a bigger point, maybe we'll talk about it at greater length at some other point, because I have other things I want to discuss tonight, I would argue that their character is going to change. Remember, we have Abraham. Abraham is the one who discovers faith. Abraham is the one who is the paragon of theology. Abraham is the one that we're told, he goes and has debates. And people say, oh, what do you mean? You know, the the pagan world, and everyone's arguing with him, and he goes and he fights back. And he goes from town to town giving lectures and giving arguments and having debates. That's what Abraham really is, right? That's who he is. He's the one who brought the idea of God into this world. Open up the Torah, and what do you find about Abraham? You don't find anything about that. You find faith? Where where is he talking? Where is he lecturing about faith? He's not. What you do find is episode after episode of kindness. Of kindness. Abraham's middle of having a conversation with God. God came to visit him. What does Abraham do? He says, "Wait, wait a minute. I see three pagans that need breakfast. I'll get back to you, God. It seems like a very poor decision. The epitome of someone's spiritual achievement is talking to God, having prophecy. And what happens when Abraham is presented with the opportunity of prophecy, and he happens to see from the corner of his eyes three weary travelers. He says God, please don't leave. Please wait. I have to go tend to those people. And he runs, and he starts making them food and taking care of them, washing their hands, and giving them drink, and everything like that, and goes back to talk to God. Says the Talmud, Abraham tells us Allah that inviting guests into your house, that's greater than accepting God, having prophecy. Abraham is all about kindness. Abraham finds out that the city of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, is going to get destroyed. What does he do? He goes to God and starts to see. Well, maybe there's 50 righteous people. Maybe there's 40 righteous people. Maybe there's... This is Sodom and Gomorrah. These are the people that are the exact antithesis of what you represent. Shouldn't you be delighted that they're gone? Isn't that a nuisance that you can finally rid yourself of? Abraham is kind to pagans. Abraham is kind to the people, the very people that he's coming to oppose. Abraham's degrees of kindness is mind-blowing. And it seems something wrong here. Why is Abraham being presented in the Torah not as the master of emunah, not as the innovator behind faith, rather as the innovator behind kindness. It seems like kindness is between men and men, faith is between men and God. What do they possibly have to do with each other? Uh, the answer is like this. Real faith is allowing God into your heart. God could be in your mind, but not at all influencing your behavior. Remember, in we read last week about the about the about the burial place of Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, and Leah. Who else was buried there? Esau's head, right? Right. The idea behind that, I'm sure you guys know, it seems like you've heard this before, is that Esau, in his head, his head was no, no different than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. His mind, his intelligence, was no different than the great patriarchs. The difference is that his body was not not at all there. It was not at all participating in the faith. If you asked Abraham in his mind, intellectually, you would put Abraham here, and and Isaac here, and Jacob there, and Abraham there. And you have a conversation, intellectual conversation. Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, Esau, all the same. You look at behavior, radically different. The reason why the Torah... Paints Abraham as the master of behavior of kindness is to show that his faith was not relegated to his mind. The faith influenced his behavior. And what happens when someone's faith influences behavior? Right. If if someone has faith, they're allowing God into their heart. Once their heart is open for God, it's opened as well for their fellow man. When someone does not have faith, they're selfish. All they care about is themselves. They don't see God. They don't see their fellow man. Faith opens the heart. They are, suddenly there's room for someone else besides for themselves. This is Think about how different this faith is, Abraham's faith is, versus what society today calls faith. Are you an atheist or not? That's what society wants to know. What we want to know, how's your kindness? How do you behave to other people? That's a reflection of your true level of amunah. And not only that, the Talmud makes it very clear that someone who has haughtiness, ga'avah, someone who has uh, arrogance or pride, different words in English to describe what we call in Hebrew Right? it's like idolatry. And just like we have to uproot idolatry, we have to uproot haughtiness, ga'avah. What does idolatry have to do with pride? The answer is the same. Because true emunah, true faith, leaves no room for any arrogance or pride. If we really recognize that the Almighty is running the show, if we really believe that, if we really influenced our behavior and penetrated, well, then every one of our successes, we would be thankful to God. We'd have humility. We'd recognize that we are not on our own capable of anything. And if you recognize that you can't do anything without God, there's no room for ga'avan. There's no room for haughtiness or pride. Pride can only exist if we forget about God. What about anger? Why would someone get angry? And, and, and what do they assume? That there's injustice. Right? Things are going to go my way. But wait a minute. Doesn't God run the show? if it didn't go your way, maybe God had a say in that. Ah, you're angry. What does that mean? God's not in your periphery. God's not a factor. How could someone, how could someone who believes in God really, not just in your mind, in your life, how could they get angry? They can't. Says the Rambam, quoting from the Zohar, Uh, Kola Khoes, Someone gets angry it's as if they do idolatry. I got angry? I mean, as if I bow down to a statue? Really? That's insane. Well, what is it? I get angry at my wife, or get angry at my coworker, or get angry at the other driver, or get angry at the slow cashier. What does that have to do with bowing down to an idol? The answer is that at the core of the reason why someone would get angry it's because they forgot about God, at least temporarily. Because if we were constantly aware of God, we would have no no reason to get angry. Something doesn't go your way, okay. Who willed it to not go my way? The Almighty. So it's a lesson. It's an opportunity for growth. It's a nisayon, it's a challenge. But clearly it's not a reason to respond with anger. Thus all our character charity. Why do we, why do we have to give charity? So the Talmud tells us is that charity is not for the poor person. Because if it was just about the poor person, the Almighty can make him wealthy. Yeah. The Almighty is a billionaire. Remember from last week? Yeah. If the Almighty is a billionaire, then the fact that there's a poor person, it means that the Almighty, it's not ah, I ran out of cash. Sorry, it's just bad times. You know the economy, right? That's not what it's about. It's about the Almighty made him poor so we can give to him. Well, what happens when someone does not give? Well, they mean that in their minds there's, there's no God. Why? Because God says give and you won't lose. The Talmud makes it very clear. There's one area in our lives we could test God. One area, that's it. Aser b'shfil shetit asher. If you, have charity, no, you become wealthy. you'll never lose from giving charity. Aser shetit asher. This is from the Talmud in the book of Ta'anit, page 9a. And the Talmud there continues. Aser, give ma'aser. Give tithe in order that you become wealthy. And the words sound very similar in Hebrew. And now that you asked, the Talmud says that the rabbi was having a discussion with the child, and he said to him, how do you know that if you give charity, you become wealthy? He says, well, I tried it. So he says, okay, but how are you allowed to try God? He says, here are you allowed to try God. the the verse, you are allowed to try God. This is the one time. We can't say it. I mean, If someone walks up and says, I'm going to flip the light on Shabbat and if God wants to come after me and smite me, here I am. You don't want to say that. Because that's the way God works. You can't say, oh, if I do a mitzvah, let God show me a sign. We don't do that. There's one place we'll have to do it. We'll have to take our, 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 our checkbooks and take our account and look at our balances and say, I'm going to give charity this year and let's see if I become wealthier or if I lose. This is the one place you got to do it. If someone doesn't give charity. What does it mean? They don't really believe in God. If someone does really believe in God. Of course, that will be reflected in their charity. Go ahead. So, if you're talking about getting angry at stuff that really doesn't matter, yes, I agree with you. But there are some things that you're angry about. For example. Well, you're angry at Palestinians that go. Well, okay, that so that's here? a mitzvah. Remember, that would be a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to be angry that's at right. injustice. That's right. That's the difference? Oh, okay. oh yeah. It means when well, we talk about anger, some of the anger that's prohibited anger, there's some anger that's encouraged. Okay. The Talmud makes it very clear. This is the Talmud Yoma. Every Torah scholar that does not avenge like a snake is not a Torah scholar. I'm going to ask you a question. Is revenge a good thing or a bad thing? No. Revenge. Revenge. Terrible thing. It's terrible. However, there's times a good thing. Exactly. Uh, depending on the circumstances, the Talmud makes it clear that even uh, that if someone does not avenge, they're not a t- 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 so. so, yes, there are times where even anger uh, is has a place, like anger at injustice and revenge against evil. So, not all the time. Anger does not mean idolatry all the time. Right. It means prohibited anger. That's right. What do you mean, the Palestinians? Like, Go ahead. If, if, some, if a Palestinian did something horrible to a Jew, isn't that will of God that happened? So that's a very good question. This is, uh, this is an advanced philosophical question. What, what role can I have with my free will to influence your life? It's a very good question. There's a lot of debate about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because essentially and this is a much bigger topic as well but essentially the idea of free will is an absence of god's oversight right because if god was overseeing it wouldn't be free, free will so the almighty essentially allows us to make choices and there's a lot of questions well ha, how can we make choices if he knows a lot of a lot of important questions we have to we have to address with that and we'll 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 put it we'll put it on our uh, on our docket we'll talk about this uh, but we do see that there is uh, a role that free will makes uh, where it essentially we take us, like, with our actions, with our choices, we have the ability to influence what happens in the world. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we're told in the Torah, if you have a fence around your roof, right, if you have a high roof, you've got to build a fence around it. It's mitzvah in the Torah. One of the six hundred and thirty mitzvahs is the mitzvah of Micah, You've got to build a fence around your roof. Why? Because if kids are playing on your roof and they fall down, they'll die. But wait a minute. If the money wants them to die, they'll die. If the money does not want them to die, they won't die. Is that right? But the answer is, is that we also have a say. If we're negligent, right? If I'm texting while I'm driving or texting and drunk while I'm driving, right? <laughs> uh, and I get into an accident, it's my fault. Don't blame God. We blame ourselves, right? We have free will. God had, you know, you know, God allowed me to have free will, of course. But God allows us to choose if we want to mess up our lives or if we want to improve our lives. And if we mess up our lives, that may mean that bad things happen to us. So clearly, someone's free will affects their lives. And maybe God didn't want them to die. But God allows our free will choices to influence our lives. Now, your question is a little bit different. It's a little bit more advanced. What if my free will wants to influence you? Or my free will wants to influence someone else? So I choose to not build a fence around my roof. So it makes sense if I fall off in it. But what about if someone else falls off in it? Or better yet, I drive recklessly, but I have passengers. Mm-hmm. Right? What do you say? If someone drives recklessly and then, God forbid, they kill one of their passengers, they're a murderer. Don't say, don't blame God. Why are you blaming God? No, there, there was an innocent victim that wouldn't have died if not for their actions. Our free will is so powerful; it could even have influenced someone else's life. That's the simplest understanding. There are those people that are going to argue, saying, "Like it's not an easy, easy question to answer." But the mainstream approach to your question is that free will is essentially God partnering with humanity in the world. Who runs the world? God. Who else runs the world? Us as well. Our actions matter. They matter to such a degree that we determine what happens. Now, huh? He uh, he allows us, of course. Yes, of course. Now, another point. I know this might be a little hard to keep track of everything here. There are some things that we don't uh, that the mind does not allow our free will to uh, to include. I'll give you an example: the Torah. We're going to read in a couple of weeks. God tells Moses, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, which means I will handcuff him. I will remove from him the ability to make choices. So this is an example. It doesn't happen very frequently, but it's an example of the Almighty saying that there are certain limits that free will has. And even though Pharaoh, uh, posts the fifth of the Ten Commandments, He wanted to let the Jews go. God said, no, I'm going to force you. This is an example of God intervening even in the realm of free will. Why? Because there's something that that needs to happen for the big picture. So there's a big picture and there's a small picture. Big picture, the destination is clear. The Jewish people have to go to Egypt. They have to be enslaved in Egypt. And they have to leave Egypt in a miraculous fashion. God pledged that to Abraham. That has to happen. Big picture. Pharaoh is going to let them go. So his free will is flying in the face of God's big picture. Sometimes, if that happens, God has to take away the free will. But, on our individual lives, you know, unless we have a role in this big picture, hopefully we do, but... Our lives, essentially, we are also governed by God and also by our fellows. Our fellow, a fellow man, their free will influences us as well, huh? And that's what, we, and we say that man's in the image of God. Man, God, that could be more more distant. We we talked about this last week and two weeks ago. We could be more distant. We don't. We can't even conceptualize God. We can't even give definitions to God. We have such a hard time in this discussion. Man's in the image of God. The answer is that who runs the world? God runs the world. Who else runs the world? Man runs the world. God is partnering with us in governing the world. Our actions matter. Our good deeds improve the world, improve our lot, a lot of our family, our community, our society, our country, the world at large. And our bad actions influence us negatively, our children negatively, the whole world negatively. If I make a blessing on a glass of water, Jewish sources talk about this being a wellspring, a blessing for the whole world. So Malchah benefits because I made a blessing. And everyone benefits because I make a blessing. And if I don't make a blessing, you lose. And that's unfortunate. Why should you lose because of me? That's the way the world works. And by the way, that's our responsibility. When we talk about the Jewish people, our, what's our responsibility for the world? Why should I worry about the world? I, I have my own, my own lot to c- be concerned about. Why should I be worried about what happens in the world? The answer is because that affects me as, as well. And I'm, a, I'm responsible for the whole world. The world was created for me, we say. I have responsibility for the entire world. We're interconnected in that way. And yes, unfortunately, that does mean sometimes that out, my free will or someone else's free will can actually influence someone else's life negatively and that's really terrible right and that's why we have a collective responsibility towards each other as a nation but even as 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 you know as a species as, as humans we, you know we have to by the way you know the point here one of the seven noahide laws seven noahide laws right one of the seven noahide laws is to have a system of justice why is that such a basic Human law that applies to everyone, not even Jews. The answer is because otherwise, what do you have? You have chaos and anarchy. What happens to chaos and anarchy? Everyone's encroaching on everyone else's life with their free will. So if I, I say I like your car, smash the window, it's mine. Right? That's what happens. And, and I want your car because it's really nice. then I have free will because I want good stuff. That's what free will dominates me to do, forces me to do. But why don't I do it? Because of the laws, Exactly. Well, same, I don't know if I would do it without law, but a lot of people would do that, uh-huh. right? And the law, the law is an impediment. Because if we don't have a system of laws, then the encroachment that's going to happen because of, our, because of our free will, or humanity's free will encroaching on humanity's life, is going to be too much to bear. In order to have a functioning society, we have to have a certain degree of laws. Specifically because... What you said, that man's free will is not limited to his sphere of life, his sphere of life. Rather, it's the entire world can be influenced by one man. Both the good in the case of Abraham, the bad in the case of all the villains throughout history, as we know. And unfortunately what's going on in narrative today in Israel today is a reflection of that. You know, people make choices based upon whatever nonsense they're told. And some people, not a lot, not, not most of them, thankfully, but some people. And then, like today, if you guys saw the video, but if you did see the videos, it's quite unforgettable. The guy starts chasing after him, and he pulls a gun and shoots him. Right? <laughs> this Arab starts chasing the Jew, two Jews, with a, with, a, with a knife, and the Jew pulls out a gun and shoots him. Yeah, exactly. They killed him. Good riddance. But either way, it's a very, very interesting idea, and it kind of expands our role as well. The idea of our free will elevating our status. It's not just that we make choices and it's isolated to ourselves, it's the whole world. And we talk about tikkun olam, the national mission. We'll get to it a little bit, hopefully, even today. Um, what does that mean? That means that our actions, our influence, has to change the entire world. The design is the Almighty gives us a world that's flawed. It's a broken world. However, we have the free will to change that, to fix that. And when we fix the world, or the more we fix the world progressively, the better the world gets. Abraham was the one who started this process. Abraham begins the process of fixing the world. Moses and the Jewish people, we make a whole nation out of it. Exodus, what does that happen? It's a whole nation whose purpose, whose stated mission is fixing the world. The idea of Messiah. What's Messiah? That the entire world is fixed. So yes, our free will is very exceedingly powerful. Okay. I want to talk about, okay, so now we know a little bit more about faith. It's a little bit more exhaustive than we thought. Uh, It's a little more nuanced than we thought. We're talking about faith changing our character, faith influencing our behavior, faith really playing a vibrant role in our lives. I want to look at Abraham for a second. I want to examine the absolute max that our faith can achieve. What does it look like? And what are the baby steps that we take to slowly move up the totem pole? I want to start with a statement in the Talmud. That's very bizarre. And this is talking about Abraham and a book that he had. Abraham had a book. And the book was called Masechet Avodazara. Zarah. Tractate Avodah Zarah, Which means the book, so to speak, in the Talmud is called the tractate. A book of Talmud is called the tractate. And he had a book of Kol Avodah, Zarah, Avodah Zarah, which means the book of idolatry. We have a book in our Talmud. If you look at any Talmud, you see a book called the Avodah Zarah. However, his book was exceedingly different than ours. His book, says the Talmud, had 400 chapters. If you open up your book of Avodah Zarah in your house, in the Talmud, you count the chapters, you have five chapters. What the Talmud is telling us is that Abraham's laws of idolatry were 80 times larger and more expansive and more exhaustive and broader than ours. What does that mean? What's missing? What more nuance could you possibly get out of the laws or the restrictions of idolatry? And conversely, rejecting idolatry is expansion of faith. Because they're opposites. So... My grandfather said as follows. As humans, we mentioned, we make choices. Free will. And choices are the definitive quality of being human. And what governs our decisions? How do we make choices? We all know. We're all familiar with the phenomenon of making choices. What Mechanically, what's the technicalities of making choices? Like you have option A, option B. How do you choose? I think most most people choose by what gives them pleasure. Okay. So it's either pleasure, it's emotion, emotion, emotion. or it's intellectual. It can be either one, don't you think? Okay, so you see you see two themes running into a busy freeway one of them is a small child and one of them is a a ball that if it were to be hit by a car it would self-combust it would pop which one do you save? Child. Mm-hmm. not a question, right? You save the child save the child gives you more pleasure than saving the ball no, the child wakes you up at night Child's a brat. You gotta feed the child. Child's a money pit. <laughs> child screams in airplanes. The ball you play with, it's delightful, you know. It doesn't fetch. You don't You feed it. But you can replace the ball. You can now replace a human being. Mm. By- okay, so it's clearly not it's not just pleasure, it's, it's value. Right? It's it's value, right? So the child is more valuable than right than the if you were given, you know, you're given an option, you win a prize, do you want a trip to Hawaii or do you want a lottery scratch-off ticket? Well, which one do you want? Well, which one's more valuable? Yeah. Right? And we do this subconsciously. Like, if that means it makes sense, of course, you take the one that's more valuable. Right? But everything in our life is, is, has value, right? Are you going to spend Sunday afternoon watching football for 11 hours? What value does that take? Or spending time with your kids? Well, which one's more valuable? Well, it depends. <laughs> okay. So, okay. But even if you ask people, hey, um, what's more valuable? They'll say, oh, my kid's most valuable. But how do they behave? They watch, they watch, football. They watch the football, right? So, you know, the proof's in the pudding, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but, th- but that's the mechanics of, uh, of choices. That's the yeah. That's the knowledge and the... Know Oh yeah, oh yeah, that's exactly what and unfortunately, it's a lot easier to know than to transfer. Right, yeah, times you, a day. What, what is she saying? She you? quotes a verse that says uh, that essentially the process of first knowing something in your mind and then transferring it to your heart, like the theme that we've been talking yeah, about. But see, the heart is involved. There's emotion involved. Some of the decisions are made of course, based on emotion. that's true. But and some of them are made intellectually, mm-hmm. right? That's things. right. And now I, I would say some of them are made subconsciously. We don't even think while we choose things, mm-hmm. you know. But so that's how we make choices. What my grandfather would describe it as follows: Imagine you have a totem pole, right? You have a list of priorities. It's simple, right? Whenever you have, the toughest choice is where the prior, where the two values seem very similar. You know, it, you know the the most difficult question to grapple with is where it's not the baby versus the ball, right? It's something a little bit closer, right? If it's closer, it's a little hard. What's really more valuable, right? What's really Uh, higher on your list of priorities. But we all are able to assign for ourselves priorities. Is God a priority in our lives? Mm -hmm. Well, it depends. In what? Well, I'm saying, the question, how do we know, how do we know if God's a priority in our lives? Okay, so like this. Let's assume we did step one. We believe in God intellectually. Okay, we said of Esau, Esau, he did that. The vast majority of the world does that to some degree. Next step is making God a priority. Now what does that mean? Priorities mean that it's on a scale. It's higher than other things. If someone chooses not to do something because God said don't do that, that's an example of someone having God as a priority. And thus, if something is on a lower priority, God is going to trump that other value. If someone never doesn't do something, never refrains, withholds from doing something because God said don't do it, God's not a priority in their lives. They might believe in God, and that's also very important, but God is not a priority. So the first step we have to figure out is how, to, how do we transfer the intellectual idea of God that we all have and make it actually a tangible priority in our lives? And and what does that mean? How is that manifest? It's manifest by us choosing God over something else. So if I have the, I don't know, the, the food item that's not kosher, I really like it. But I like God more. God's on a higher priority, so I'll say no, it's not kosher. But then, what if there's a food that's even that much more delicious, if that's on a higher priority, right, on the totem pole than God, well then... You've got to follow what's the higher priority, right? So anything that someone does that's not in line with what the Almighty wants from him, that item is higher than God on the priority. And anything that someone does, right, or withholds from because God says no, that's an example of something that's below God on the priority line. And that's the first thing we got to do. And we'll get to Abraham in a second. What happens, what do we call, what's the Hebrew word for every item that's higher than God on our list of priorities? There's a Hebrew name for it. Anyone knows the Hebrew name? Higher than God? Yeah, on our list of priorities. What is it? Avodah Zarah. Idolatry. Idolatry. The Jewish definition of idolatry, remember, we're, we're a little bit advanced here. When we talk about idolatry, it's not bowing down to some figurine. That's not. It's anything that is of a greater priority in our lives than God is idolatry. So I'll give you guys some radical examples. You love your family, right? You love your kids, right? You love them more than God? Okay. That's an, that, that's an element of, of, of idolatry. I'm not saying I don't love your kids. I'm saying there's room for us to grow in our faith. But you, you love your house, right? Okay. Do you love it more than God? That's idolatry. Can you love the same? Well, well the question is like this. If you're Maybe faced you with a choice. I give you guys an, an example. And I, I'm not trying to cast blame, as, as I'll explain here. This is, we're trying to demonstrate there's a process of growth here. If someone says, hey, it's, uh, um, uh, it's Shabbat, God forbid, and there's a fire, and they can extinguish the fire on Shabbat. We're assuming that everyone's safe, right? If if, ever, if right, they extinguish the fire on Shabbat, or they just walk out of the house and they lose their house. So that's a challenge we hope to never be faced with. Yeah. Now, the Torah does the halacha, the law says that if, if there's a fire in the house, remember we're not talking about cases that anyone's life is in danger. That then every, all the rules, all the rules, right? No one's in danger. Everyone's safe. There's a fire. Are you allowed to put put extinguished fire? No. However, you would be allowed to, let's say, put water around the fire. That way, when the fire expands, it'll be extinguished by the water. Okay. But if someone is faced with such a challenge, they'll find out what they value more: God with their house. Now, now, we don't want such a challenge. My point again, we don't want such a challenge. Right? Where tower will be very hard. It's not an easy challenge. Right? But it shows that there's a lot of room to run in faith. Faith is not just a yes or no question. There's thousands of levels. Where you have thousands of items in your priority list. Hopefully, God is one of them. And hopefully, like great the great people, men of faith, God's near the top. So, I'm not, so, so my, my point is not not don't let, let's not get defensive. Let's not get upset. Let, let's recognize that this is a lifelong project. And the more we do, every mitzvah that we do is a boost to our internal priority system and pushes God up a little bit because it makes it more real with us. Every time we pray, we bolster our emunah and as a result, God's going to move up our priority scale. So once we establish God as a priority, and we're slowly moving it up, we, we have to recognize that our definition of idolatry is anything that's higher than God. What about Abraham's definition of idolatry? What? Imagine God is the number one priority. That's a number one priority. Is there anywhere else? Is there any higher you could go? No. Someone says, your life, right? Or commit idolatry. Shoot me. I value God more than I value my own life. Right? Someone, their family, their, all the high priorities, their job, their career. You, you, want, you, want, you want your job? You want your job? Work on Saturday. That was a, 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 that was a common challenge people had in the early part of the 20th century. What happens? Some people stayed home, they came back on Monday, they were fired. They got a new job, they went back, stayed home on, on, on Shabbat, fired again. They demonstrated that they loved God more than loved their job. Some people, unfortunately, they loved God. God was a priority; it was a top priority. But their career or their profession, their job was higher, so they were, they came into the to the to to uh, they came into work on Saturday. But that's an example of a conflict between two great priorities in our life. But let's say we're at the top of the mountain. God is the old, is is the top priority in our lives. I just gave away a hint. <laughs> Where else is there to go? What could be greater than having God as a top priority in your life? There's no way. You can't make him topper than top, right? That's where Abraham comes in. Abraham made God not only the top priority in his life, but the only priority in his life. How so? If something is your only priority, then every other item is measured by its connection to that only priority. For example, Abraham has his house and God. Right? The house is a priority, but only because his house is a place where he can do kindness. Only because his house is a place where he can welcome guests right? and thus right, uh, uh, demonstrate his relationship to God. Nothing else in Abraham's mind has a value on its own. It's everything else only has value in its relationship to God. Only relative value, not absolute value. In Abraham's book of idolatry, of Avodah Zarah, everything that was not God is put in the book. His standards for idolatry are much more rigid than our standards. For us, idolatry is anything that's higher than God in our priority levels. For him... Anything that's not God is considered idolatry. 400 chapters you need to hold all that information. Everything is assigned a value only if it can contribute towards the ultimate value, the only value. Essentially, if you were to look at Abraham's life, everything he did was a mitzvah. Everything. Why? Because you only do things because they have value to you. And Abraham only assigned value to something it was a mitzvah because it brought him, brought him to God. Thus every action, every thought, every word that Abraham uttered was a mitzvah. Because otherwise he would have no value in that activity and wouldn't do it. Does that only happen when he became, uh, when we pick him up in the Torah when he's well, like 75 years old? Let's talk about Abraham's progression. Very good. Listen to this, guys. Very interesting. We know that Abraham did kindness. Kindness is a mitzvah, right? right? Let's say there came a conflict between kindness and God. Well, I mean that happened. Well, they're both they're both mitzvahs, right? So how do you choose means how do you choose between a mitzvah and a mitzvah? They're both mitzvahs. Well, God's the only God's the only one, right? The mitzvah is because it brings you to God. So what happens? Abraham is tested. How's Abraham tested? God tells him or his, first his wife tells him, get rid of Ishmael. Send them packing. Well, he's my kid. What do you mean? Are you my own kid? Send them packing. Abram's greatly distressed. God tells him, listen to Sarah. Abram's kind, right? Is it a kind thing to send your own child into a desert with some, a loaf of bread and some water? Go fend for yourself. Is that kind? No. No. Of course not. And the one person, you have the most responsibility, your own child. You have the most responsibility to be kind with your child. And God tells him, be unkind with him. Essentially, what we're being, what what, what Abraham is being tested, he's being tested by doing a mitzvah, right, unto its own, or listening to God. And he shows, I'm going to listen to God. Because the only reason why I'm doing a mitzvah is not because I believe that Kindness is a good thing, yeah. Of course, kindness is a good thing on, on to its, in a vacuum, but in Abraham's world, kindness is a mitzvah because God told me to do it. Because it has no value unto its own, it's only because it connects me to God. So, if God tells me not not to do kindness, then kindness has no value. And he listens to God. And what's the end point? What's the worst thing someone could do? Murder. And what's the worst person someone can murder? Their own child. So God is essentially giving him this ultimate test. I want you to do child sacrifice. I want you to do murder. I want you to murder your own child. I want you to do the most unkind thing someone could possibly do to someone else, and that's to take their lives. And isn't it a mitzvah to sustain someone's life? Right? So wouldn't it be a mitzvah to not kill someone? Yes. Wouldn't that be a, a, a kind of a really big mitzvah? So he's telling him do the worst thing in the world, because I say it. But he's essentially giving him the ultimate test. Is there anything besides for God himself that's, a, that's its own priority? We'll find out. Because if there's anything left, it involves murder. And Abram says, Abram demonstrates that there's only one priority in his life. So Abraham is obviously someone whose levels of faith we probably, we probably cannot reach. But what he shows us, what he demonstrates in his progression through faith is that it's a good place to start, to have a discovery, to believe in God to have an intellectual eureka moment It made sense to me. And that could be you don't have to be Jewish to have that that could be, it's it's an experience that's shared uh, by billions of people in the world it's the starting point for any discussion of faith. Step two, which is the hardest leap to make is to actually have this influence your life. To change. To behave in a different manner. Well, how do you behave in a different manner? Because of God. If it's a priority. If it actually penetrates into the internal system of measuring and and evaluating items of importance in our lives. So anything that I say, I'm not doing this because God... Well... God's there. So if there's anything in our lives that we said we won't do because of God, we have God as a priority. If there's, if there's nothing, well, then God is still relegated in our minds. <laughs> Once God's a priority, every action that we do is going to push him up the ladder. No, remember, he doesn't need to go up the ladder. And he, he doesn't need our approval. We're not doing any of the actions of faith for him. It's for us. We want to become greater people. We want to become greater influencers. We want to become people that achieve a purpose. How do we do that? Via acts of faith. How do we perfect our areas of faith? By making God the top priority. If we to live our lives and achieve that God is the top priority in our lives, we have lived a life really, really, really well. We could, that's fantastic. But even once we reach that tremendous endpoint, there's still room to run. There's still room to run. How do we do that? By eliminating any value to anything aside from God. Now, you know, we're talking in grand terms. We're talking about Abraham, of course. Like, none of us could, you know, even in our wildest dreams, ever reach what he did and accomplish what he did. But we're still told in the Midrash, a person has to say, a person has to yearn, when will my actions reach the actions of my antecedents, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, while we know that the levels of faith that Abraham got it's really out of our reach, we can't really imagine having a struggle between slaughtering our own kids and God. It's really nothing we can imagine. You know what? If God can the means to slaughter your kid, I'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> right? We're not there yet. And I don't imagine we'll ever get there. Yeah. But the idea of assigning God as the top priority in our lives, that we could all get. You know why? Because anything, anything that's of a higher priority than God in our lives, well, that's idolatry. Uh, and slowly but surely we could get there. Uh, and I think, if anything, this shows us that, uh, you know, we could really broaden our perspectives on, uh, on, on what faith is and what, and, 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 and how it, um, uh, it is really an area that we could grow. It's not just a yes-no uh, question. Okay, so uh, I'm going to stop here. Uh, we have uh, – we'll take a few minutes now between before the next discussion, but we still have to discuss – uh, a little bit more about uh, what you brought up, Esther. Um, God interfered with our lives, the oversight. God and history. You know, The Jewish description of God involves him manipulating history, which is a crazy idea. We talk about the, the destruction of the first temple. Right? Why, was Why was it destroyed? Why was it destroyed? What does that mean? It was destroyed because the Romans or the Babylonians came and burnt it down to the ground. That's so what the fire combusts. Well, the real question we're asking is, spiritually, why did God allow that? That's a uniquely Jewish question. We believe in a God that is involved, is, is, is aware, is engaged, is participating in our lives, not only on an individual level, most certainly on a national level as well. Right? God's taking the nation out of, it, out of Egypt. God's giving us the Torah on Mount Sinai. God's involved in our wars of the conquest of Israel. We get manna from heaven. A whole nation, manna from heaven. Like, whoa. Suddenly it's not just a the theological. This is very practical. But this is God involved in history. That's a much different uh, power than what you know, the rest of the society is talking about God. That's just an idea that's out there. That's not actually you know, uh, you know, real or involved in, in a practical way. By the way, I, uh, Einstein... I had no problem with God of the cosmos. He could believe that there was a force, an element, an entity, an intelligence that created the universe. And you know what? You have to be a fool to think otherwise. Right? The more you know as a scientist, the more baffling it would seem, uh, unless you're totally biased, uh, that this all happened on its own. But to think that the God of the cosmos would, be a, would care about what happens to us nothings. You know, think about it. In the whole universe, there's one galaxy and the all, all the trillions of galaxies it's just our galaxy and our earth and Israel and us and my behavior, my mitzvah, that, that matters to God. That's what, the, uh, that's what Einstein can wrap his head around. But the Jewish God is involved in our lives. It's just a remarkable idea. The creator of all the cosmos, which by the way, our universe is complex, but our cell, every cell that we have in our body is equally complex. Just mind-baffling. Right? That creator cares about us and my behavior. And if I study Torah, it matters. Right? And we talk about God as God arranges marriages. Talma mechanical, we're not last week in the parsha. Uh, Laban says to Eliezer, uh, uh, the Almighty intervened to make sure that we find a relationship between Isaac and Rebecca. God is making marriages? The God of the cosmos is making marriage. That's what we say. So it's a, it's a dramatically different description of of um uh of a power of God. Uh, and we'll talk a lot more about this the next time. And That's that. What do you guys say? Dave, question? Thank you. Thank you. So um, my brother will be here soon.